Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. Cecilia Leong Salobir, Research Coordinator for the Center for Western Australian History, the University of Western Australia, is going to talk to us about what the colonials, especially the 19th century British in India, Malaya, and Singapore, ate. Curry figured prominently, of course. But there were other things, kedgeri and pishpash and maligatani soup. And this fusion cuisine, if it may be so labeled, was a result not just of substituting and making do when ingredients for any recipe were unavailable. It was also the result of much cross-cultural interaction between the British and the Indians, the Chinese, the Malays, the Dutch and the Portuguese. Nor was colonial cuisine uniform and homogeneous across Asia. Dining customs and what went on the dining table differed widely from province to province, country to country, setting to setting. Cecilia will talk us through these complexities now, with special emphasis on what she considers to have been the most significant colonial food of all, and no prizes for guessing what that might be. Good morning, Cecilia. Good morning, Tara. Uh, how are you doing? Uh, I'm fine, thank you. And you? Well, uh, great. Uh, thanks for doing this for the New Books Network. It's a wonderful book, you know. It's very interesting and, uh, you know, people generally don't talk about food, but it's something that's a very overlooked subject, so I'm really excited about doing this. So, could you, like, just tell us something about yourself to start off with? Um, well... I live in Australia now, um, but I come from Malaysia, from the uh, state of Sabah. It was a British uh, colony, British North Borneo, and I was nine years old when British North Borneo became independent. Of course, at the time, I knew nothing about, um, I, I didn't know that I lived in a colony, and, and then I went to um, a mission school and high school, and at high school, I really wanted to um, do a degree in uh, nutrition um, uh, after high school. However, because I was so poor in maths and science, my maths were not good enough. And I went into journalism, did journalism in New Zealand. And um, to make a long story short, then I did a history degree, did honors and a PhD in, in in history. So this book is a result of um, my PhD history. Um, it's called A Taste of Empire, the a, a Taste of Empire, the Colonial Kitchen in India, Malaysia and Singapore between eighteen fifty eight to nineteen sixty three. So that's very interesting. That means your previous uh, background, your interest in nutrition led you to write this book. Yes, yes. Uh, that's a great way. I mean, you have a lot of like interdisciplinary views on, you know, history and historiography. Yes. So, I guess um, looking back at my childhood, um, it, it was a really wonderful childhood uh, in a very nice state. However, m- my memory of my childhood is a bit sketchy, but I, the things that I remember mostly um, have to do with food. So I guess the interest has always been in, in food. So could you tell us something about your childhood memories of food, you know, like colonial food specifically? Um, interestingly, while the colonials, while the, the subs and mem subs, although in, in colonial Malaysia and Singapore, they were not called saps and mem saps, but twans and mems. So while they had their um, colonial hybrid foods, 
we were eating our own ethnic foods, and it was at that time quite clear cut. The Chinese would eat Chinese food, Malays would stick to the Malay food. It was only decades later that we all. Um, it was decades later that urban Malaysians or urban Indians or urban Australians are now we're eating a very globalized um, cuisine. Um, so when I was a child, we ate mainly Chinese food because I'm of Chinese origin. And I remember going to Chinese weddings, Hakka weddings, that's my dialect, where we had um, festive foods um, in the countryside. The tables were laden, overladen with all kinds of festive food. It was, it was wonderful. It was so plentiful. It was, um, colorful. It was delicious. And it was a, it was a very nice atmosphere. Um, so, uh, this was obviously very different from the colonial experience in Asia. Mm -hmm. I mean, colonial food in Asia tends to be like, you know, a lot less colorful, would you say? Um, I think the colonial cuisine in India and Malay and Singapore, it was a distinct cuisine. Um, it was a combination of European foods and local, Indi uh, local ingredients that were put together by Indian domestic servants and, and um, native servants in Malay and Singapore. Um, the local people would view those foods as quite mild and bland compared to their own ethnic foods, I guess. But it was still a bit um, spicier than um, English food of the time. And was there any association with, uh, you know, colonial or Western food being posh insofar as the locals were concerned? Because when I was growing up in India, if you went to a hill station, you know, or if you went to anywhere well remotely posh, what you would get was, you know, Anglo-Indian cuisine, you know, you wouldn't get the regular Indian stuff. And to a certain extent in the more old school establishments, this is still the case. I like it, so it's good for me. But uh -huh. what do you think about that? Yes. Um. So in the... In the colonial household, the the mem sub would be responsible for for the meals of the day, although she never did the cooking. So she left it to the the cooks um, to come up with dishes that was palatable to the European household. So so the I think the colonial cuisine de developed and orin originated in the colonial home. However, this was extended to the hill stations to European type hotels and um, to duck bungalows or rest houses in Malaya and, and Singapore. So so that colonial cuisine originated from the home and expanded towards um, outside of the colonial home to other colonial institutions. So let's start with breakfast. Uh, could you tell us something about, well, the breakfast at the Empire Builders ate? Um, so in the morning, they would have what they called a little breakfast or chotahasri. Although in, 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 that, that's in India, but in Malaya and Singapore, there was no specific name to that. They would also have a, a cup of tea and a biscuit. But in India, it was a little breakfast of a chotahasri. And then the, um, the, the sub and mem sub would go riding or go for a walk. And later they would have a, a, a a larger breakfast, and quite often they were quite substantial uh, meals by themselves. And then they would have lunch, or sometimes they call it tiffin. Although tiffin, as I described in the book, in Malay and Singapore, was a completely different thing. Um, and there was lunch and afternoon tea and dinner and supper. All of these were very substantial meals in a very hot climate, I must say. So, what about kejiri? You mentioned that as being a breakfast food. Yes, that's right. And I think it's it, it, like most colonial foods, um, they are still being eaten um, in in the UK, particularly though uh, by those who were colonials or expatriates. 
Well, it's interesting because I mean, often the natives, you know, they eat kachiri as a sort of like light dinner thing. So, how do you think it evolved, you know, into a breakfast dish, into a largely non-vegetarian dish? I sub- I I haven't done that much re- uh, research on kachiri, um, but I think that it was a vegetarian dish to start off in India. Yeah, and then. They put fish and sometimes even meat in it, and I guess the fish for breakfast um, would have come from the the keepers uh, for the English breakfast. Okay, so then we move on to lunch. So could you like you know just tell us something about the lunch you know about staple lunch foods about the pattern of lunch you know well across India, Malaya, and Singapore in in. It's so there is no um, no one set pattern that applies to 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 the colonies because, for instance, in in um, British Borneo, um, it the meals were quite often dependent on the type of work the subs would be doing because they could very well live in a rubber plantation. Where, where the men would go home for lunch, or if they lived in an urban area, they might have something small to eat in the office, and um, so it's it's quite different. Um, but if it was like a a weekend lunch or a Sunday lunch in Malay and Singapore, that there would be a very large um, relaxed lunch, and they call it tiffin, a Sunday tiffin where the centerpiece of the buffet table would be rice, and then there would be dozens and dozens of side dishes. Um, there is some research to show that this might have originated from the Indonesian rice table, where you have um, many, many side dishes to complement the centerpiece of the rice, uh, right, main rice dish. So... I, I guess for every household or every um, district or presidency as in India, it's quite different. Um, but mostly the foods, it would be a, a very distinct colonial lunch or colonial supper that um, uh, the colonials would be partaking so there was this thing you mentioned about the lunch in uh, Borneo and in British Malaya being influenced by Dutch, you know, fusion in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. So this means that colonial food was not just influenced by the local food, but also by the food of like the other colonial powers. Um, yes, uh, specifically in in British Borneo, uh, there was a lot of influence from uh, uh, from the Dutch colonies because some of the Domestic servants came from Indonesia to to work in in Malaya and and Borneo. And uh, what about Portuguese food? Uh, I think that the influences from that would have come later. I I in my research I haven't found that much influence of um, the Portuguese on British uh, on the British colonial cuisine. But that's very interesting because out here in Western India, it's like obviously Goa being a Portuguese colony and obviously the Goans were Catholics and they tended to be, well, a lot more liberal than the Hindus who had lots of caste hang-ups and they tended to be employed as cooks in the bigger hotels in the chain. So one would assume that, you know, this Goan Portuguese thing carried over into British food. But, uh, yes, I think in India, yeah. there they definitely would be some Portuguese influence from the Goan cooks. and. Um, but I don't know how far um, Portuguese influence has um, impacted on the Goan cooks because um, really from what I, I've seen, it's it's mainly uh, the perpetuation of cooking curries and meals like maligatani, pish uh, pash and all of that. Um, so... For sure, they were very good cooks, but I don't know if they have um, taken any Portuguese um, 
food influences in in their cooking for the British. That's a very interesting thing. I mean, I think it actually needs some more investigation yes. into it. But um, going on to um, well, dinner. I mean, obviously, dinner was something like the main meal of the day. Would you say? Um, yes, yes, most definitely. Again, it was substantial. Um, I'll try to find the uh, passage where um, I cited huge meals. Um, would Would I have a minute to look for that? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, there is a part where you mentioned that lunch was seen as a meal for you know women and children that sort of yes, thing. Yes, I think um yeah. particularly yeah. in India where they they uh, call it tiffin and and I think that refers to a light lunch. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting Kipling poem with about this man and the monkey, you know, and like the monkey just says, "Okay, I've never." Tiffin that Pelitis with another Bandar's wife. Uh -huh. So I think Tiffin was always seen as, you know, a way like to conduct something flirtatious, to conduct something clandestine, you know, you go and do it over Tiffin at a similar cup. Right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. Yes. <laughs> I very much enjoy Kipling depictions of uh, well, Tiffin. That's right, yes. Um, I, can't, I can't find it. But however, um, generally they would have large amounts of um, meat, mutton, ham, chicken, turkeys even, fish, and some of them would be roasts. And so you would have a number of large, substantial European di dishes. And then there would always be a few curry dishes as well. And this is on a daily basis. They would have curry beef or curry chicken. And always, always there is rice. And it, it seems as if that you have large chunks of meat, and the meal was not complete unless there was a rice, a main rice of dish and curry. So rice, uh, I assume that rice we are talking about British Malaya and Singapore? Yes, all, all of them, yes. Mm -hmm. Well, what about uh, chapatis? Because a lot of North Indians, they would eat chapatis, they would eat naan. I mean, to what extent was that incorporated into the colonial kitchen? I haven't seen any Indian breads being um, served on the colonial table. And in fact, quite often, they would, the um, British would be hankering after uh, European type of bread. And they talked about trying to bake uh, European type of bread in the kitchen. And I think in one of the um, stations, there was even a bread club where... I think the cooks got together to bake bread and memsaps would try to um, obtain bread from them. I think as, as far as I know, there was not much um, consumption of local breads, which is a pity because Indian breads are delicious. Um, well, I prefer rice. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> but yeah, this one interesting thing is that bread in India, in Western India anyway, the word is not bread. They will say pao, which is the Portuguese word. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Yeah. So we have all these bakeries, I mean, you know, and the bakeries are typically they are run by Muslims or they are run by like, you know, recent Iranian immigrants. And there are quite a few of them, you know, still current in Bombay. And they will always like, you know, sell pao. And that is the word that has like passed into in Indian currency in Western India for bread. Mm -hmm. It's kind of become, you know, a Hindi word, you could say, or a Gujarati or Marathi, to be more precise. So, so you call it pao? Yeah. It's interesting because the Chinese call it pao as well. Wow. That is amazing. Mm -hmm. So, okay, there's a certain amount of Portuguese cultural legacy that hasn't been eradicated no. by the British. No, no. <laughs> yeah. But uh, going back to dinner, obviously this was the... I mean, these last dinners were a daily basis or was this only like, you know, when they had some kind of social occasion, you know, when everybody in the like settlement or area would come over for a party? Um, I think it was a, a daily affair that they had substantial meals. But because of the nature of 
um, the administ colonial administration, uh, there would be a whole army of colonials always on the move, moving from station to station, presidency to presidency. And at that time, because there was a lack of hotel accommodation, lack of rest houses, quite often colonial households would entertain their colleagues who came from other stations. So quite often there would be guests for, for dinner who is, who were staying with um, that colonial household. So, in a way, it's the colonial cuisine was evolving and developing within the homes and outside of the colonial home. And the, the visiting memsapt and a husband would perhaps exchange recipes with their cooks of of their house. So. It was, I think it was a very vibrant and um, a, a, a very much developing cuisine. There was lots of input, interchange among cooks even, because quite often cooks from other households would come to another household to, to cook when there was a, a large party. And uh, you also mentioned that sometimes when a family moved into a new house at a new station, they would inherit the cook along with everything that's else. That's right, that's right. So, I mean, uh, how would they actually, how did they find this process? I mean, how did they find the process of breaking in the new cook, you know, accustoming him to their customs? I guess because the, the cook um, had all the no, uh, local knowledge, they, in fact, they would know better than the um, incoming uh, colonial master and, and his wife. I guess they would just take charge and perhaps there was discussion with what preferences the, the new sub and mem sub liked in, in, their, in their food. Um, but because of that local knowledge, because they would know where to shop, where to get the ingredients, how to uh, work the um, local kitchens. In fact, they they perhaps they were the ones who break in the the colonial masters in the household. Um, that's kind of a problem because okay, they were employed by the household and they were more familiar with the local area. There was always the issue of them cheating the mistress of the household. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, in my chapter on uh, servants of empire, I talked about the unequal yeah. relationship as of all uh, master and servant relationships. Um, yeah. Yes, so there was a perception, particularly in colonial times, that domestic servants were dirty, um, they were cheats, they were dishonest. And yet, so th that was one of the central themes in my book, that Although they were so inferior, they were inept in every way, and yet um, the colonials depended on them in the most personal and intimate tasks, such as food preparation and looking after children and serving the food and washing up after after um, them. So there was no tradition of cooks being imported from England? Um, imported from? England. Um, in the very early days, in the East India days, there were some um, female cooks and housekeepers who were imported. Um, I think they were few in numbers and only by the very well-to-do. And in in time, that maybe because of expense, um, that fizzled out. In in the end, it was. They were totally dependent on the local um, domestics. So, could you tell us something more about how these domestics were recruited? What kind of people were recruited? And what were the systems that, uh, well, the British evolved for you know, negotiating with them, like, you know, for keeping a balance between the employer employee relationship? I think they were recruited through word, word of mouth and quite often when a servant left the um, employee of uh, the a colonial master, he would try to get a cheat, a kind of reference letter to say how good they were. 
and with that piece of paper, they would um, look for work. Um, because there were so many, because of the sheer size of the population um, and, and cheap labor, the colonial masters were able to employ large armies of servants. Even for the middle class household, there would be at least uh, a dozen or so of, of servants. And these servants would have their networks of people who would be interested in work. So it was a quite a little industry going on there where there was a large turnover of servants where servants would sometimes accompany the household to hill stations and some of the servants from that household would stay back in the plains to look after the the, the sub who was still working in the plains um, before his time to go to the hill stations. Um, and you mentioned something about the servants' living quarters in your book, you know, that they kind of lived far away from the house and that the kitchen was sort of midway between house and servants' quarters. So could you elaborate on that? Yes, in, in, in India as well as in the Borneo states and, and uh, Malay and Singapore, the, the kitchen was always situated away from the main part of the house sometimes. Um, in the same building, but very often, especially in Singapore and Malaya and, and the Borneo states, they would be in a separate building at the back of the house, connected by a sheltered passageway. Now, when I was doing research on that, immediately I thought, oh, that's separation, that's very colonial. But then I did research on, um, on kitchens and uh, living quarters of servants in Victorian England. That was exactly the case there as well. It was always well away from the house or in the basement. So that practice would have originated from from the UK of the, the separation. And the reasons given um, sometimes vary from um, that the, um, the, the colonials would not want to smell cooking smells from the kitchen or sometimes they said that the kitchen was so dirty that it was better that it was situate, situated away from the house that they did not have to to look at it. So there were many reasons for that. Uh, you've done quite a lot of research for this book. Yes. Uh, so uh, how did you like start about gathering information about doing the research here? Um, so I used cookbooks, um, Anglo-Indian cookbooks. Now, I was very, very lucky that the largest collection of Anglo-Indian cookbooks, uh, I'd like to make a clarification here. When I talk, of, when I say Anglo-Indian, it refers to Anglo-Indian, Anglo-Indian in the uh, colonial era and yeah. not to, and, uh, people of mixed race, yes. the same yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that was the, the Anglo, I think it was, it started from 1919 that the, the term Anglo-Indian came into being. So I was very lucky to be able to access uh, the largest collection of Anglo-Indian cookbooks in here in Perth in, in Western Australia. Um, Mrs. Joyce Westrip let me have full access to it. She's hundreds and hundreds of these books. So I went through every, each and every of those books and, and researched on them and looked at the meals, looked at the recipes. It was quite interesting that with, in a couple of the books where they devised menus for a month for the colonial household. And in this month of uh, menus, for each and every day of the month, every meal had one curry dish except for one meal of the day. I think it was in 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 one month, it was the 26th day that no curry was suggested. So that really reinforced my contention that, you know, the British really ate a hybrid cuisine and that they did not eat just a totally... Uh, British, British foods. 
Uh, yes. So, so I looked at Anglo-Indian cookbooks. I looked at Malayan and Singaporean colonial cookbooks, and there were only two or three cookbooks um, written for the Borneo states. And I also looked at memoirs, travel logs, and other personal documents of colonials at the time. You mentioned something about a questionnaire in your books that you sent out. A, yeah, could you tell us something about that and how you did it? And yes, yeah, so I devised a questionnaire about maybe thirty-five to forty questions, open-ended questions, and I sent them out to those colonials who lived in Singapore and Malaysia, Malaysia today. So they were spread all across the world, in the UK, um, in Australia, New Zealand, and other places. So I was lucky that about 31 of them responded and gave detailed responses. So going back to the cookbooks, the questionnaires, the travel logs, uh, what were some of your favorite recipes that came out? Um, I think it was Pish Pash. Um, it's it's a, a very light rice broth, and it is it it was a nursery food for for British children, I guess. But I, in a way, it's. And also it was um, used for, uh, they, they were consumed by people who were not feeling well. So it was like a, a kind of comfort food. And that resonated with me because when we were children, we were sick, um, we were always given a rice porridge. And that was comforting. And the British had that and they called it, I, I don't know the origin of the word pish pash. But it was it was very much part of uh, the colonial cuisine. A fish pash is, is it likely it could have been influenced by congi? Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, because if you look at it, kajiri is rather more solid, and uh, well, the Indian version is also kind of solid, but this is more gruel based. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yes. So yeah, that's kind of an interesting connection. Uh, what about the other recipes? Sorry, I can't hear you. What about any other recipes apart um, from fish passion? Yeah, for me, the, the most defining dish of the colonial cuisine would have to be curry because it was so, it was, it is so fascinating. It's, 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 it is still so much part of uh, a global cuisine today. And I devoted a whole chapter to curry, and I intend to do much more research on on curry. Um, the origins of it is quite murky because, as far back as Richard II's time, there was um, a kind of curry dish in his kitchen with spices, um, with um, and it was always a, a, a spice. Well, the, the, the degree of spiciness varies, but it would always have spices. It would be a casserole-like dish. It would be sort of goldish, golden in color. And today, just about every country has appropriated curry. You go to Fiji, you go to Germany, you go to Japan, and each country, the inhabitants would say, but that's our curry. That's, that's, the, that's the only way to make curry. And if you went to India, there's no such thing as a curry dish because, you know, they are all individual dishes with different spices. And yet we have appropriated curry in different countries and there's always the link to India, that it originated from India. So it's, I think there's still so much more research to be done on that, although there are many, many books written on curry, some coffee table books, some cookbooks, a few um, quite ser- serious scholarly books, but I really would like to do much, much more research on that because I just wonder why has curry, you know, taken on this um, importance in the world? What is it? What is it about curry that's so so important? 
Is it because it is an exotic dish that we feel that, oh, I am very cosmo cosmopolitan, I want to try that uh, exotic dish. I know the dish, I critique it, I own it, we have it, and I go to another country and they make curry, but it's not all curry. So it's, there, there are a lot of questions that I'd like to, to, to find answers to. That's very interesting. You know, you mentioned this thing about people wanting to eat curry because they wish to be seen as cosmopolitan. Well, I can assure you in modern India and Bombay, it's like actually the reverse, you know, because a lot of people, if they wish to be seen as cosmopolitan, curry is the one thing they're going to uh -huh, avoid. Uh -huh. But in India, you, you, know, you do you, you don't have like a curry dish to, to embody a lot of dishes, curry beef, curry chicken. You, you call it, there are different names to it. Yeah, but I mean, uh, it's like obviously, uh, like your average Indian, you know, is not going to be uh, some kind of gastronomic uh, devotee. So, I mean, the thing is, they, when they talk about curry, I mean, they're talking about the general spectrum of gravy based dishes, okay? So, it's very interesting because they might even like Indian food, you know, definitely. But if it's a gravy based dish, if it's like, you know, high on the carbohydrate side of thing, if it's brown colored, they're going to look at it and there's a term. I mean, it's very current in India. It's also current in the Indian or the South Asian diaspora in Britain. They call it Desi, okay? So that's basically means, it's basically means provincial and they'll say, okay, I don't feel like eating Desi food uh -huh. today. And they'll go off and, you know, maybe get a pasta uh -huh, dish. Uh -huh. Yes. I mean, in like, you go to Germany, you go to a bistro, they would be serving curry verse, curry sausage, or they would um, sprinkle curry powder on um, on pork on ch on chicken. So even the word curry itself, it's it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I mean, uh, this thing. Uh, how come you think the British in well, you know, in Asia started eating a lot of curry? Do you think the original idea was like just the easy availability of the spices and the need to preserve meat or something That's like right. that? That's right. And uh, at one stage, they even um, a curry in the belief that it has it has um, medicinal qualities, and well, it was one dish that they felt that the the local cooks could cook um, very well, and that they needed no prompting. It was the same with rice, and quite often when you hear criticism of uh, domestic cooks. They would say, oh, but, um, you know, they cooked rice or curry beautifully. And yeah, so the, the idea was that a cook should be given something cooked that he could actually manage and not make a mess of. So would you say that the cooks were encouraged to learn how to cook European food? Most or not? definitely, because, um, can you hear me? The lawnmower is going outside. Um, okay. Yeah, I can hear um, Yes, they were encouraged. In fact, um, in many of the um, narratives by the colonial mistresses, they would sing high praises of their, their cooks who were able to turn up magnificent um, confectionery of baking beautiful cakes in a very primitive uh, kitchen over very primitive um, ovens. Yes, most definitely they were encouraged to cook um, dish, European dishes like hams, um, pastries, and um, all, all kinds of foods. Oh yeah, you mentioned this interesting incident about a pastry cook in your book. Yes. Um, could you tell us about um, that? Which incident is this? Um, you know, the one where this, uh, Mim Sahib, she thinks her cook makes a really good pastry and she just sneaks into the kitchen with her friends and they find him like, you know, using his chest as a sort of like, you know, board. See, so that, that was, um, there were many vignettes of this nature and they were always told at parties, they were written about in books. And I guess that was, I don't know how far these stories were, were true. But I guess that was one way of perpetuating that the, the, the myth that the, the local people were dirty, were untrustworthy, were always very tricky and, and, and filthy in their habits.
And if you were to take them seriously, if they were that filthy, why engage them as your personal cooks? It's actually quite interesting because on the one hand, I mean, you say that they were, you know, filthy and uh, so forth. And on the other hand, if they adhere to their own notions of cleanliness, you know, like this whole Hindu system of, you know, not eating reheated food or whatever. And then you say that they were superstitious. So it was a no-win situation for the natives, I yes, think. Yes, so it's all of this. Um, it's, I guess, colonialism is paradoxical. It's um, very contradictory. Um, yes, it's, it's, it, I think it's wonderful to study uh, uh, colonial history through one signifier such as food because you get all the bits and pieces and you may not find the answer, but it, it helps to uh, explain some of the contradictions in colonial behavior. Yeah, and uh, one more thing, okay, so you had a colonial cuisine in British India, in British Malaya, in Singapore. So how much transference was there between all these colonies, I mean, in terms of the food being passed um, I think um, it was huge. Um, so the British were in India much, much earlier than in the other colonies. So they were there, so they established their households, the women came, and and the colonial cuisine slowly developed. And then when they went to the other colonies, so they were the colonial um, dishes really, there was a, a huge leap of, of the dishes from one colony to the other. So the, there were very similar dishes in, in Malay and Singapore to those from India, the curries, the um, kajuri, the maligatini, all these were all eaten in the other colonies. And sometimes when a administrator from India was transferred to Malaya or to British North Borneo. Sometimes they would bring their own cooks with them. And also because of the large number of Anglo-Indian cooks, cookbooks were published, these were transported to the other colonies. So yes, there was, um, there was a large, in, there was a huge interchange of, of recipes among the colonies. And what about the differences? Were there any dishes that actually remain confined to, you know, the colonies of their origin? Um, I guess it's like Madras, apparently um, the Madras colonials were very proud of their prawn curry. So you would get certain presidencies who were su supposedly more famed in their different dishes, the Madras with the Madras uh, prawn curry. And apparently um, one of the royals, um, I think it was Prince Albert who went to India and he specifically went to Madras just because he wanted to try the, the Madras prawn curry. So, um, and in, in Singapore, Malaya and the Borneo states, as I was saying, Tiffin was definitely a colonial institution in those colonies. I don't think you have that uh, Sunday Tiffin in India? Um, no, I guess not. Um, I'm not very clear uh -huh. about this. But, um, yeah, I mean, well, speaking of post-independence India, I mean, obviously, they have pretty much an urban life and Sunday is the only time when they can get together and, you know, have a lunch all the family. So they do tend to, like, you know, have a big lunch on Sundays. But I'm not sure whether this the uh, you know recent phenomenon or what they ate before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, like I was saying before, um, it probably originated from from the Dutch colonials from the rice tarpaul because of the proximity of, of Indonesia to to the Malay states and 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 the Borneo states and Singapore. Okay, so what do you think happened to, like, you know, colonial food, colonial cuisine after decolonization? I, th I think it, it still exists because in some of the grand hotels, there's still the Tiffin uh, rooms in, um, in Raffles Hotel, 
in some of the hotels in Kuala Lumpur um, where they served um, colonial dishes. Today you can still have a, a Sunday tiffin. You can still have your curry made the colonial style. You can still have maligatini soup. Um, it's not out in mainstream cuisine, but they still remain popular among uh, certain groups. And from my questionnaire responses from the colonials, they continue to eat colonial-type foods from time to time in their homes in, in the UK, in Australia and New Zealand. They'd be more interested in the colonial style food as opposed to the pure Indian or Malaysian food yes, or something. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm sure they also eat, eat the other foods. Yeah. 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 yeah, that's very interesting because we have an interesting phenomenon out here in Bombay. Some of the older, like, you know, colonial era hotels or the cafes and things, you get, like, typical colonial cuisine. I mean, you get croissants and everything, but they always taste a little bit odd, you know. And then you have the newer chains, like Starbucks and things that come in and, like, Odd Mac, for example. Well, okay, well, Mac is whatever. But anyway, they come in and then the food you get there, you know, it's, like, totally different. It's uh, on a par with the uh, modern European food, you know. So there's a distinct, like, you know, difference. And a lot of people, like, you know, they might not want to go to a modern chain, but they still go to some, you know, old world place and, you know, eat the stuff. Because uh, for them, I think it's sort of, uh, it's, it's at once portion, it's at once, you know, comforting because it's not very far removed from, you know, Indian food, you know. But if you go to some uh, more modern, high-end place, you know, then you're going to have a chef imported directly from the continent and that's kind of intimidating. So the cultural leap is much bigger. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, and I guess it's, for some people, perhaps it's um, wanting to have a touch of, um, you know, nostalgia is important and... I think that's what the grand hotels are doing, um, you know, trying to um, cash on that idea of um, nostalgia in the past. And I guess because of films like Jewel and the Crown and the other rush type of films, so it was, you know, looking to the past. Yeah. Um, well, Cecilia, we've taken up a lot of your time. I mean, it's been a fascinating interview, you know, talking about food. And But anyway, one final question before we let you go. Could you tell us something about your future? Research? Well, I'm, I'm, like I said, I was, uh, I'm interested in doing something on, on curry and um, curry in the past and curry today. Why has it taken on um, in such huge proportion? Why is it so much in the public imagination? Why is it so important? What is it about curry that that has transcended just about every culture? Um, what part has India uh, played? Has, has it got a part to play? Is it just the spices? Is it the whole idea about India and exoticism? I, I don't know. But another um, area that I'm researching on is I'm trying to look on food consumption patterns of Indian and Chinese international students in Australian universities. And that has not been looked into, and I'm um, really trying to um, develop ideas about how international students cope in Australian campuses where food is quite different, where the kitchen is different, ingredients are different, and yes, I'm 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 looking into that. Uh, so, what have you found? No, I, I've just I've just started writing the proposal. Um, so, I am I would like to interview probably about six or seven hundred students, both Indian and mainland Chinese students, um, in universities across Australia, to see what they're eating what they're missing from home, how how much of um, their home foods they still consume, um, and how much, uh, what their kitchen is like. And very often we talk about student welfare, we talk about adjustment, cultural adjustment, but we've never looked into food and how that impacts on their well-being. 
because I think food is more than just a biological act. It's much more than that. It's about identity, about sense of belonging. And how can you look into welfare without looking into food because you have to consume it several times a day. And if the foods you find in on Australian campuses are not palatable, are not what you're used to, how does that impact on your well-being? How does that affect your studies? How does that affect your integration in student life? So that's what I'm interested in. Well, Cecilia, I was an international student at Melbourne University between 2003 and 2006, and obviously that was like my first time outside India, so I think I might actually be very relevant to oh, your project, um, not to put myself that would forward. Be fantastic. So, I would love to do that. Yeah, and so speaking about my personal experience, you know, it's like coming from Bombay, you know, I mentioned this thing that this was, I left Bombay in 2003, okay, this was just before, like, you know, the change and things started coming into Bombay, you know, this, there was a trickle, but it was like a trickle, you know, now it's like Bombay is like any other place in the world, so the only access to Western food I had was like, you know, in these old colonial cafes and restaurants, that's why I've been talking about them this much, and they were all concentrated in South Bombay, you know, that was obviously the main uh, financial and wealth the center of life in the city, not in the northern suburbs where you have a more conservative, like, you know, more traditional Indian population. So, like, for me, you know, coming to Australia and, like, you know, getting in an Australian supermarket, it was like heaven, okay? <laughs> I could just eat whatever I wanted to, you know, I didn't have to eat any more curry. <laughs> I, I loved it. I mean, it actually was very useful because I, it was obviously a lot more easier for me to cook, you know, I mean, like the whole package food thing, and it was very accessible because they had all these instructions and things written down. And that was not the case in India because with Indian food, it's very traditional. A lot of the knowledge is learned, and you have to be part of the whole feminine, you know, kitchen thing. So, yeah, for me, I mean, it wasn't a matter of hoping, it was a matter of jumping in and, you know, eating as much as So, there goes my project. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> the exception proves the rule. Uh -huh. Yes, yeah. Yes, yeah, so yeah, I'm 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 quite keen to to work in in that area. Oh uh, well, thank you very much, Cecilia. I mean, obviously, I'd love to you know offer any assistance that I can, but uh, uh, I'm afraid we are running out of time. But it's been just fascinating for our listeners. So thanks once again for doing this for the New Books Network. Um, goodbye. Thank you very much, Dara. Thank you. So Fox. A delicious interview about what was global cuisine before the term was ever invented. I am really hungry now and I hope you are too. Goodbye.